Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Did the Prime Minister's message make you feel A, safer, B, less safe? You may feel you can answer that already before he's even gotten into his stride. I know uh, that I probably can, but you can vote now and onwards on my Twitter feed. And as I said, we'll be taking calls all the way to 8 o'clock. We're giving over the first hour of the show to the rapidly developing situation on the coronavirus in Britain. As well as the world, I mentioned earlier, uh, that we are top of the league you'd least like to be at the top of. We have more deaths in Britain per million subjects than any other country in the world. Sweden is second. The United States is third. China is, of course, at the bottom of the league, the only league you'd ever wish to be at the bottom of. This is the mother of all talk shows. It's coming from London, but it's speaking to you all over the world. Well, I'm going to start while I wait for the headlines of the Boris Johnson pre-recorded statement uh, with the rewriting of history to which I referred in the introduction. It's beyond obscene. As a matter of fact, it's almost funny uh, that the iconic picture of the Red Army soldier lifting the Soviet flag to a flagpole above the rubble of the Reichstag 75 years ago yesterday has been banned from Facebook. The most iconic, one of the most at least, iconic photographs in all history has been banished. I think the rest of us should do what we can to spread it around the world, myself. Turns out that it was the Americans and the British that won the Second World War. Even though four out of every five Nazi casualties in the war were at the hands of the Red Army, at the hands of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union lost 27 million citizens, a figure which dwarfs every other country on the earth except for China, which doesn't even get a look in on these occasions. The Soviet Union lost 27 million. China may well have lost 20 million people in the Second World War. But according to a tweet from the White House, not even Donald Trump's increasingly unhinged personal Twitter account from the White House Twitter account, it said that the United States and Great Britain had won the Second World War. Well, talk about rewriting history. I know why they do it. Uh, they do it for Two reasons. First, they have to, other, they have to demonize uh, the former Soviet Union. 
uh, because what would people conclude if they really knew that the Soviet Union had been so strong that it tore the guts out of the Wehrmacht, to quote the British Prime Minister Winston Churchill. What would it say about the Soviet Union? That it was able to absorb the onslaught of millions of Nazi soldiers, whilst the European governments folded like cheap tents in front of the assault of that very same army. Von Paulus, the German general who surrendered at Stalingrad, had earlier led the German armed forces into Paris. He captured France with his soldiers. What would it say about the Soviet Union if people really knew that the Soviet Union had been so great so great uh, that it had destroyed Nazism, the existential threat to humanity, to civilization on this planet. And the second reason is because since the coming to power of Putin, Russia has gotten off the floor where it was lying drunk, having its pockets picked, and has begun to restore its strength, its national dignity, its unity, its cohesion, its importance in the world. Russia is one of only a few countries in the world still pursuing independent development and rejecting the incredible efforts of the United States and its allies to dictate what happens in every corner of the world. So for these two reasons, Russia and the Soviet Union have to be written out of the script. And these are the people who tell you about fake news. These are the people searching everywhere for bots and Twitter accounts that might just take a different point of view to the prevailing orthodoxy. When you rewrite the history of the victory of the Allies in the Second World War, if you're capable of rewriting that, you literally are capable of any lie, no matter how large. Now, Boris Johnson speaking now. Uh, he says uh, that they have implemented uh, measures and stopped a catastrophe. Well, I'm not sure if they stopped it. As I said, we are the worst in the world for deaths per million citizens. We have the second highest death toll in the world. And we are catching up, actually, on the United States of America, even though we have 68 million people in our country, and they have uh, at least four times that, maybe five times that. Boris Johnson says it would be madness to allow a second spike. We must stay alert. So don't forget that. Stay alert. Look out for the coronavirus. He says... Uh, that there is the shape of a plan, the first sketch of a roadmap to reopen society. He said he's consulted all four nations across the UK. He said, I believe that as the Prime Minister, there is a strong resolve to beat it. That's just meaningless verbiage. Although we have a plan, it's a conditional plan. We have to satisfy the five tests. To chart our progress, we're establishing a new COVID 
alert system. And here I have it now in hard uh, copy. He says there will be five alert levels from one to five, five being the most critical. We're now at level four. Why then did you change your slogan? Why did you change the color of your slogan? From red, stop, to green, go. Why did you abandon the slogan, stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives? Why did you abandon that slogan in favor of the meaningless, utterly risible command that we should stay alert? Two most things you must do is reverse the number of deaths in care homes. And a world-beating system. We're going to have a world-beating system of test and trace. We are testing literally hundreds of thousands of people each day, he said. But that's not true. You never once tested 100,000. Not literally hundreds of thousands of people each day. That is a brazen lie. Prime Minister, in time you'll be able to detect local flares in your area. This is not the time to modify the lockdown. Why then did you brief the press during the week and produce all these headlines about Happy Monday, about the lockdown being over, and above all, why is your Chancellor set to outline brutal cuts to the furlough system, which will of course force people back to work in unsafe working conditions. Because of course there is no lockdown. If people are faced with the choice of going hungry or going back to work in an unsafe environment. It's been said that the Chancellor is going to cut the furlough from 80% of your wages to 60. But there's some reports today that he's planning to scrap the furlough altogether. Now, I hate to tell you this, Prime Minister. You weren't in Parliament at the time, uh, but I was. Article 44 of the Employment Rights Act makes it illegal duty of workers and managers to walk off any job which is unsafe. I was one of those responsible for legislating uh, the Corporate Manslaughter Act, which makes it a criminal offense for which the employer can go to prison for requiring workers to work in an unsafe environment. Now, if we have any trade unions left, if those trade unions have any idea of what their purpose in life is, those unions will be telling the Prime Minister right now, our members will not be going back to work until you have cleaned the workplace, until you have made it clear and measurable that the danger to our members, your workers, has been eliminated. Now, here's more. There will now be unlimited outdoor exercise, but you must obey the rules of social distancing. 
That one I support. There is evidence uh, that uh, the sunlight and the warmth of the current weather uh, can be helpful, not only in potentially destroying the virus, but in improving the mental health sense of well-being uh, of the population. I just make this plea. Can you not jog past people panting out your coronavirus breath in other people's faces? If you're going to jog rather than walk, can you put a mask on? Can you turn your face away as you run past other people? And by the way, is the Thames walkway a walkway or a cycle track, Mayor Sadiq Khan? I'm only asking. Fines will be increased on those who break the rules. After June the 1st, some shops and primary schools will open. Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, is at the front of demanding a return to work, an exit strategy, he calls it, and he's demanding that the schools be reopened, even though that would send the virus running amok in the schools, amongst the children, and amongst their families when they come home from work. By July, says the Prime Minister, we will hope to open at least some of the hospitality industry and other places. Yeah, it's a pity you hadn't stopped uh, the horse racing. It's a pity you hadn't told the Cheltenham Festival that it couldn't go ahead. It's a pity that you hadn't told Liverpool Football Club and the European football authorities that they couldn't play uh, the game between Liverpool and Atletico Madrid, the clue being in the name Madrid, which was even then under lockdown. It's all conditional, apparently, according to Boris Johnson, uh, but it will soon be the time to impose quarantine by air passengers from abroad. What do you mean it will soon be the time? You have been allowing flights from New York City, from Wuhan, from Iran to land here. And thousands of passengers from these hot spots of the coronavirus to walk through our airports and into our communities. Why did you do that? I feel about this a bit like I feel about the so-called war on drugs. There's never been a war on drugs. As anyone passing through an airport knows, as anyone watching cargo arriving at ports knows, there's never been a war on drugs. And therefore it's wrong to say that the war on drugs is lost. It never started. Neither has there truly been a lockdown in Britain. Because you can't have a lockdown when you are allowing unlimited numbers of passengers from the worst affected areas in the world to freely fly into our country. We had, as we did in the Second World War, quite a considerable advantage in being an island. When you're an island, you can take a decision that people are not coming in. And that's what we should have done. And we never did it. And now we're told it will soon be the time.
to impose quarantine by air passengers from abroad. I quite simply don't understand that. Uh, work from home if you can, says Boris, but you should go to work if you can't work from home. Well, that's the most significant uh, of these statements, isn't it? Work from home if you can, which is fine for people in a profession like mine. I already worked from home most of the time. But for the mass of the working class in this country, working from home is utterly meaningless. You can't do your factory work from home. You can't do your warehouse work from home. You can't work in a shop from home. You can't work in your office in most of the jobs from home. And so that statement from Boris Johnson, wrapped around with all these caveats, is the bull point. Work from home if you can, but you should go to work if you can't work from home. So there you go. That is the order of the British Prime Minister. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. The R rate is still amongst the worst in the world. The deaths are continuing at roughly 600 per day on average. We're top of the world death league. But if you can't work from home, you should go to work. Where, unless you stay alert, stay alert now, why don't you pay attention? Unless you stay alert, unless you control this virus, you'll be right in the thick of a second wave. Just like the people were between 1918 and 1922, when the Spanish flu rampaged throughout the world, killing perhaps 50 million people across the planet. And guess what? Guess what? The second wave of Spanish flu was much, much, much worse than the first. So it's a death sentence that uh, Boris Johnson has just pronounced on thousands of workers. And all those who agitated for this, whether they think themselves on the left or believe themselves to be on the right, 
whether they're libertarians or whether they are utter reactionaries, all of you who have agitated for this will have the blood of thousands of people on your Now on hands. my Twitter feed, did the Prime Minister's message make you feel A, safer, B, less safe? And I've got calls uh, on their way through. We will still be doing the Hall of Fame. We'll still be doing the Wall of Shame. I think we'll even still be doing, though I don't yet have it, that was the week that was. And we'll be talking about football, I promise you, in the second hour. Jesse is on the line in Brighton. Let's hear from Jesse. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me, for having me on, George. Sorry. Welcome. Um, Welcome. I... Um, I completely agree that it's totally reckless um, to advocate for a complete shutdown of, of the lockdown regime. You know, herd immunity has not worked and such people would not only be liable for, uh, you know, so much blood on their hands, they would be responsible for the complete breakdown of the NHS. Now, having said all that, I, I would really struggle to advocate openly for an extension of lockdown. For millions of people in the UK, this is just simply not an option. Um, the low, they constitute the lowest strata of working people in the UK. We have people who are going for whole days without eating, um, and a minimum, and their own wages and salaries are not enough, are not enough to make ends meet. Let alone a whole twenty percent being ducks from their weight from their wages. Um, so, so why don't I, you put your uh, eloquence and energy into a demand for a hundred percent, rather than sending the people struggling to eat into a death trap? Well, absolutely. I, don't, I mean, my, I mean, I'm not trying to be hyperbolic or anything, but I think the only way out is socialist revolution. So it's only the capitalist system that is bringing people to this impossible contradiction. Well, uh, we're now in a much sharper contradiction because wrapped up in all that uh, greenery uh, was the bull point. Uh, if you can't work from home, you should go to work. Right, and but again, that puts them in danger, doesn't it? You bet. I mean, Jesse, thanks for your call, mate. There's a lot of people trying to get through. Thank you. Alex is in Manchester. Go ahead, Alex. Hi, George. Uh, thank, Hi. Thanks for having me. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. Um, I've got to say, I'm a big fan of yours, and I've just joined your workers' party, but that's, uh, that's not the reason why I'm... Uh, thank you. In. Thank you. The uh, reason why I've phoned in is because I'm in complete agreement with what you've just said. I've been saying for months now, and I've witnessed it. This is not a proper lockdown. I'm a frequent traveller to China, and I've seen what they've done there, and I've friends in uh, Vietnam and other parts of the world. This is not a lockdown. I've got my next-door neighbour who flew in from New York uh, last, last month, it was. He went to his mother's house and his father's house. He drove them to the supermarket. No quarantines, no nothing, just two days after. And this is something that's happening across the UK. It's not an isolated uh, incident. No, I really think we should go much, much harder. There's uh, seven um, flights a day from New York arriving in London. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. I think there was 1.100,000 people coming into the UK with no checks, no temperature checks, no quarantine, just coming and spreading. And I think that this the is The lockdown, it was always a lie, this uh, lockdown. 
They've been following the herd immunity from the beginning. Mm -hmm. The only alternative uh, to that, Alex, would be that we really are led by complete blithering Austin Powers idiots that don't know the left hand from their right. It's top down. It's top down. We've got the perfect example of what's going on. I mean, you saw it with Boris shaking hands with people, taking it as the flu, and then Matt Hancock getting uh, the virus. Six days later, he's back at work. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's uh, 12 times more fatal than the flu for all those half-wits that were telling us just a couple of weeks ago uh, that it was the equivalent of catching the flu. Alex, thanks for the call. Richard is in Nottingham. Let's hear from Richard. Go ahead. Oh, hi, George. Um, yeah, you're not going to like this, but um, I think the um, uh, uh, the, de the death, uh, I think the whole thing about COVID-19 is it's being driven by fear and panic. And uh, the reason I say that is when the disease was first came out, was estimates that it could kill 2 million people in Britain. And that was subsequently revised. I never saw down. that estimate. Who, wh whose estimate was that? I can't remember, but... Um, That's a pity uh, that you can't remember. Uh, the, I, I the, know. Worst, uh, the worst figure uh, was 500,000. Yeah, uh, it, was but revised, we're at 50, it was We're at 55,000 now. Well, the figure, the death rate was revised down to a possible death rate of 500,000. Yeah. Then it came down to 30,000, yeah. and now it's... Uh, now it's, now it's, nearly, now it's nearly double that. And no sign of it uh, dying out, uh, Richard. Well, if, if you'd hear me out, it's killed... Uh, we, we're supposed to have passed the peak, and it's killed... Um, is it 33,000 people? No, no, now? it's according to the Financial Times whose numbers I trust, and any sensible person would trust, the numbers are 55,000 uh, 55, dead. The World Health Organization has us at the very top of the league of deaths per million. Unless, well, uh, unless both the FT and the WHO know less than you, Richard. Well, I'm, I'm just going on the government figures. That, well, uh, you know, would you? 30, Have you seen our government? Would you, have you seen our government? Do you go by their figures much? Well, it's the only figures that I've got it to go It isn't on. your only figure that you've got to go. Well, no, you can Health, I'm telling you, the World Health Organization figure, do you dispute it, that we have six per million and Sweden has five per million, first and second in the world in the death rate? Why, well, look, why, why deny look, that, Richard? I'm, I'm not denying anything. I'm just uh, putting a point of view. Go on, then. That actually the um, death rate, according to the government, is 33,000. And then I'd like to go on to make the point <laughs> that um, dying with COVID-19... Oh, I've heard all that before. ...is very no, different no, no, from I've dying of COVID-19. No, look, I've heard that bilge so many times... I can't bear what? to why hear is it, it again. Is, well, why, Richard, why? if you've got bowel cancer and you're hit by a train, it was the train that killed you, not the bowel cancer. Well, that's disputable. I mean, if oh you my take God. the... the um, it's, if you're hit by a train, it's it, it, disputable well, here, that the train killed you? Well, rather than talk over me, why don't you talk to no, me? I'm talking to uh, you. Here, but, no, well... Listen, George, it's just let me it's put a my bad point line of view. from Ward 5. You just, said it's, my, you just said it's disputable 
And that it was the train that killed you. Well, let me put my point of view, and then you can talk over me. You know, we had that comedian, Eddie Large. Well, he went into hospital uh, with heart failure. He was 78. He'd had a, heart, a full heart transplant. And because he had COVID-19 recorded in his system at the time of death, they put his death on his death certificate. This it is was, sophistry, uh, Richard. What, it's what, not why happening. You quite, it's I'd happen, like to ask happening. you a question. Why yeah. are you doing this? Why are you doing everything you can to minimize the fatality of a virus which has turned out to be 12 times more fatal than the flu? which has stricken millions of people across the world, which has killed hundreds of thousands of people in the world. What's in it for you to minimize this? I'm Are you an employer? Are you a capitalist? No, Are you anxious no. to get back to work? What is it? What's your motive? No. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, all right, if you stop talking at me and rather talk to me, I'll, I'll tell you, I've got no interest at all in minimizing anything. I just want to put the uh, whole thing in perspective. I mean, you were talking about the Spanish flu that killed 50 million. Yeah. There's no evidence to suggest that um, we, we will reach anything like that with well, COVID-19. Well, uh, it's fear-mongering, it, uh, uh, and it's scaremongering, uh, 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 and it drives the panic. And I tell you what, what lies at the end of the afraid. panic. You, what you don't understand is that 99 90%, of the British people agree with what I'm saying here right now. 10% agree with you. 10% yeah, well, want to I, end the lockdown. 10% think uh, it's, uh, it's uh, some kind of hoax. 10% think it's fear-mongering, scare-mongering. 90% agree with me. Why do you think your arguments have so failed to catch on amongst the British people, Richard? George, you know when they invaded Iraq, we were told that uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction that were being you capable you of being to, used at it, and that? that drove a panic yeah. reaction that had no basis in truth. Is, and is, and that what you think, is that what you think it, this is? Last well, point. Is look that, at the, look, do you think, do look you at think the, the coronavirus is the equivalent of the fake WMD claims in the Iraq war? I think it's the same panic that is going to drive, um, is driving the ship and that it needs to be put into a proper context. What is the context? Well, the context is that it's killing mainly uh, very frail and old people. Are very frail and old people of no importance uh, to uh, you, uh, Richard? Uh, no, no, they are. But what we need... You've got in, a mother in that or a father? What, what You've got any there, elderly relatives? Yes, I have. Well, then why, why do you use such words? It's well, mainly, It's mainly killing, you say, airily, old and frail people. Are old well, and frail people right. not as entitled to life as yeah. you and I? Exactly. Well, why wouldn't you just um, completely safeguard the elderly? Yeah, but how uh, do you elderly. completely safeguard it if everyone else is passing the virus onto each other? How do you do that? And well, you may you... be aware, perhaps you have overlooked it, that a six-week-old baby died of the coronavirus 
just yesterday. You think that's funny, Richard? Why did you laugh? No, no, I don't think I'm laughing. I sigh because you don't know what the, that baby died of. It might have died the COVID-19 in its system, well, but it didn't I mean know. say that it's necessarily. Well, Peter I, Hitchens. I, I, listen, 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 doctor. Peter, let me, listen, let me t- listen no. doctor Richard. I know you, that the doctors said the six-week-old baby had died of the coronavirus. Now, who am I going to believe? Uh, Richard in Ward 5 in Nottingham, or am I going to believe the doctors that treated the baby? And it wasn't a sigh. It was a laugh. It was a laugh because you think that any evidence from medical professionals is somehow the equivalent of Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair lying about the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Be gone with you. You know, P- Annie, Peter, Annie, you know in Peter Annie Hitchens. In Bishop Peter Auckland, uh, who is a care home worker. Go ahead, Annie. Hi, George. Yeah, I'm sorry I missed the beginning of your show because I was listening to Boris's. Yeah, yeah, I um, understand that, yeah. Thing. Um, I did, however, listen to Richard just before me. Mm-hmm. Um, but to. to brush him aside, if you don't mind. Yeah. I want to say that after Boris's speech, I'm heartbroken, I'm disappointed, but most of all, I'm incensed. I'm a care worker. I work in a care home. We've had positive test results. I go in every day and do 12-hour shifts, as do my colleagues, as do a lot of working-class people up and down this country. And because the majority of this country are working class people and don't have the option to work from home, we've been doing this for weeks. I am disgusted that there was no policing on this lockdown because everywhere I've been, when I've been going to work, I've seen people out on the streets, I've seen people in back gardens with other people not from their families. And now he's relaxing it, the the non-existent lockdown even more, where I work and where I live, we're in a crisis. And I just wanted to tell you I am completely disgusted with the way this government has handled this pandemic. Well, I'm extremely grateful that you called. I doubt there will be a better call this evening. Uh, You're a care home worker uh, where... Uh, thousands of our, as Richard put it rather airily, uh, frail and elderly people have perished, along with many of the carers looking after them. 200, 200 NHS workers have died at their post. And still we've got people are calling it some kind of hoax, like the Iraq war uh, WMD hoax. And the more I look at what Boris Johnson's just said, Annie, none of it matters except one sentence. That you should work from home if you can, but if you cannot, you should go to work. Yeah, this is devastating. That's the only sentence that matters in what he said, because that means that the employer will be expecting you back to work. Yep. And if and you it's don't the working go, class again that will yes. suffer. Now you were already at work unprotected because you had to be at yeah. work. The nurses had to be at work. The doctors 
had to be at work. Now everybody's got to go back to work. If you're working in B&Q, you're working in uh, Topshop, or you're working in a factory or a warehouse, now, according to Boris Johnson, you've got to be alert. As long as you're alert to control the virus, you should go back to work. That it's, is the long fun. and the short of it. It's, it, it's a death sentence, Annie, on thousands of working class people. Yeah, it breaks my heart. It breaks my heart. I don't know whether to cry or stand and punch. I can't write placards well, and I can't go on a street. You've nearly, you've nearly made me cry. I'll tell you that. Annie, thank you for that call in Bishop Auckland. Let's hear from Jim in Renfrew. Go ahead, Jim. Hi, George. Hi. Uh, I totally agree with uh, your you, what you pinpointed there. This is a green light for employers to put pressure on people to go back to work. Yep. But I just wanted to ask you, I was reading a study by the about the epidemiologists in Sweden, who, as you know, uh, are, uh, are uh, pursuing a policy of herd immunity. Although they did, uh, ban, they did ban flights in. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Unlike, my us. Question, Unlike us. They did indeed, yeah. My question was, sorry, the, the other part that astonished me about Boris's statement was after he said, you should go back to work if you can, he then said, don't use public transport, right? And in Get on your study, bike. The, Remember exactly, Norman Tebbit, right. Jim? Exactly. Or walk, <laughs> walk 20 miles, you know. But these epidemiologists in Sweden, sorry, I'll finish my point. Yeah. There is some suspicion. They're actually discouraging the use of masks. And there's some suspicion that it's because, of course, they want the virus to spread. Yeah. If you want herd immunity, you want the virus to spread. Why do you think... The government, if they're telling people to go not use public transport, why will they not encourage mandatory masks? Well, uh, these are uh, some of the multiple contradictions. I I'd go this far, Jim. Yeah. I don't think that Boris Johnson has got one single thing right in this yeah. entire crisis. And it's not often yeah. that you can say that even about a Tory government. Everything mm. they have done has mm. turned to ashes and literally ashes and death. Mm. They have mm. not made a single call uh, which is the right call. And in yeah. Sweden, of course, the wet dream of the Peter Hitchens is Sweden yeah. is right on our shoulder as the worst yeah. death rate in the entire world. Jim, thanks for the call. Kath is in devices. Let's hear from Kath. Go ahead, Kath. Yes, hi. It's hi. about the same thing, really. Um, yeah. The government's saying you should. It's that word should, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. You should go to work if you can't work from home. Yeah. Well, it's such an obvious nonsense statement, really. But don't so use public transport. Well, yeah, quite. <laughs> but you should you know go what? to work so on your bike. Most people's jobs are just not there anyway, are they? The shops are not open and lots of things are not going to come online to be open for absolutely ages. So what is the point of saying you should go to work? But the real problem is it's covering the government's arse, really. It's covering them to to stop the furlough payments because they're saying, well, we've told you to go to work, you know, if you're not going to work, why should we pay you? It is really just giving 
people an excuse to berate the people who can't get to work or whose work isn't there anyway, you know? It just gives a bad, bad feeling about these poor people who are stuck at home, who would want to be working, really, of course they would. Marvellous call, Kath. Thank you so much for it. I really appreciate it. Wayne is in Cheshire. Let's hear from him. Wayne, go ahead. Uh, I wanted to talk about the situation with the flights. Um, yeah. Now, I feel that, um, that during this uh, this horrible situation, that the, that the Conservative government still want to basically adhere to the class system. And I've been to, over the last uh, number of years, I've been to a lot of uh, AGMs. I need to explain this so you know what's going on. Um, now, a lot of people, actually, I didn't realise this, fly in. They're English people, but they live abroad. They live um, in big houses and all the rest of it. And I basically, I think the government don't want to give these affluent people a lot of hassle coming in, going out of the country. So basically, it's like the class system. They just want to leave them alone. And that's why they won't be answering any of these questions for these flights. It is uh, one of the most uh, discombobulating features of the so-called lockdown uh, that hundreds of thousands of people from abroad, including the worst affected places in the world, have been allowed and are continuing after tonight uh, to be allowed to fly in here without even a temperature check at the uh, frontier, never mind being put into quarantine, which is what is happening virtually everywhere else. Certainly everywhere else that they have managed this. I'll remind you that the death rates in China, in South Korea, especially in Vietnam, where the death rate is zero, zero, with a border with China, uh, the uh, track and trace, test, contact trace, Embargo on all uh, entry into the country has kept their death rates at the bottom of the league, whilst ours has reached the very top. Wayne, thanks for the call. David is in Bedford. Go ahead, David. Hello. Good evening, George. Good evening. Um, I'm actually an expat. I live in Bulgaria. Okay. But my wife's in the UK as a care worker. Okay. And I have just returned to give her emotional support because she's so stressed. Okay. Um, I was appalled that I could just walk through the airport without any checks at all. And when I saw that the country's in an economic lockdown, but doing nothing for the virus compared with other countries. Um, it's I'll give unspeakable, you an isn't it? Yeah, when I left um, in uh, April, on the 17th of April, and arrived in Bulgaria... I had my temperature taken. I had to fill a form in with my phone number and saying where I would go and self-isolate. Every single day during the 14 days lockdown in my house, the health service rang me to ask me what my temperature was. Um, the local mayor was the only person that came to the house and did my shopping for me twice during the 14 days. And, and this was in Bulgaria. Yes, and people there, without a mask on, are getting fined uh, equivalent to about six months of an average salary. That is an amazing call, David. I'm really grateful uh, to you for it. Let's take uh, Chris in East Kilbride. Chris, go ahead. Hi, George. How are you? Yeah, good. Nice to hear you. Go on. Right. 
George, I'd just like to uh, point out a, a, a little thing that's actually happened to my family. My sister uh, actually caught COVID-19 from... Uh, uh, she's actually works in a private care home. Now, uh, what actually happened is she ended up in hospital. She was very sick, um, thankfully. Thankfully, she's uh, recovered, um, and she's, she, she's now on a three-week line. The private care home has now told us she's getting statutory sick day. What's your thoughts on that? Well, I'll tell you what I've started a campaign for today, Chris, and you should pass this on to your sister. We need to nationalise the entire care home granny farm industry. We need to bring it into uh, public ownership. We need to end the idea of uh, private profit from, uh, I was going to say, looking after our old people and our vulnerable, but in many care homes, that's actually uh, just about the last thing that happens in there. Uh, these care homes are all now in danger, apparently, uh, of uh, financial collapse, and as they collapse, the government should take them in. We need to look completely, comprehensively, uh, differently at the way we treat our elderly people. I have advocated all of my life uh, for a reform to the, uh, to the taxation system, which would allow people uh, to uh, expand their homes, build granny flats, uh, convert uh, lofts and so on to make space so that people could keep their elderly people at home as any civilized society should do. And where that's not possible for any variety of reason, the condition of the elderly person or the uh, they may not have family and so on, uh, then there'll have to be care homes and these care homes have to be part of the NHS and social care uh, system. So uh, the care home in question, I don't know if you're prepared to name it, uh, has an absolute obligation uh, to its workforce, never mind a legal yeah. obligation to its, uh, uh, its clients. Uh, and if it's not uh, living up to uh, its legal obligation to your sister, uh, then action needs to be taken. Uh, can you say which, which care home it is or is that difficult? I think that would be difficult because not, right. I'm not in the position to do that. Right. Um, right. However, you know, I think it is a disgrace. I think it's something you championed so far, and I'm really pleased that you're doing that. And thanks very much for your support. Thank you. God much. bless you. And give, give your sister my regards. Please, I appreciate it, Chris. Did the Prime Minister's message make you feel, A, safer, or B, less safe? You can vote now on my Twitter feed. And lots of social media uh, coming in on all uh, platforms. A Twitter user says, Boris is an idiot. The government doesn't know what it's at. They just can't be trusted. Death on their hands. And Kovicny says, worried for the English. Grateful they are on their own island, separated from the rest of Europe. But hey, at least they got Brexit done, sort of, almost. And Max says, my partner works in cosmetic surgery. Her employers are forcing them back next Tuesday under the guise they are wearing a face mask, so don't have to abide by the two-meter rule. Georgie says, brilliant address to the Moats Nation just now. Thank you, George. No one should be forced into a danger zone to work. As you stress, it is legally wrong 
as well as morally wrong. Thank you, Georgie. Dave says, is it me, or are the only things that are going to be allowable from Wednesday are those things that the government has already lost control of, thus turning an inglorious defeat into something we should all feel grateful for? And on Facebook, Andy says, I'm disputing I've been hit by a train. <laughs> and on YouTube, Alfred says, you can't stop the virus, you can only delay it. Protect the vulnerable and their carers. Let our immune system do what it's been doing for 100,000 years and get on with our lives. Or deaths, Alfred, you might have added. And one email, Paul says, it now seems that the narrative is changing on the furlough scheme. The people who've stayed home will now be portrayed as the new idol through choice, villains. No furlough means the pittance and sanctioning of universal credit. I guess that's the plan. Well said, Paul. Now, uh, Lisa Nand is not just a travel writer, she's the queen of travel writers. Her podcasts on travel uh, are an absolute must. Even I have done one with her. And she joins me now, I'm glad to say, uh, to look at what this all means, Lisa, uh, for is it, tourism's dead, isn't it? Foreign tourism, it will never I come back. I want to say no. I'm desperate to, you know, even though I'm a travel professional, I'm Googling coronavirus travel every day and looking what the Foreign Office is saying and that sort of thing. I want to say no, it's not dead. Um, you know, who would have thought that would have people like British Airways in trouble, Virgin Atlantic in trouble? But, you know, with the quarantine, uh, Boris Johnson said, uh, referred to the quarantine. He didn't say exactly what it was going to be. He said something um, along the lines of there will be a quarantine. But uh, the travel industry are terrified. They think it's been bashed enough and this will be the last sort of bashing and yeah essentially might kill it off you know hopefully not for good but definitely for a long period into the future you better get doing some podcasts in britain's uh, coastal resorts and uh, and the highland wildernesses because that's where any sensible person is going to go for their holidays from now on no uh, well, you say that. However, inbound tourism and domestic tourism is worth a lot of money. It's worth £127 billion to us a year. Who's going to come into the country? There's not enough people here to go on holiday and sustain all the businesses that travel involved. You know, it's not just about the airline. It's about the tiny B&Bs, the hotels, the Airbnbs, the cleaners, the musicians, you know, the waiters, the restaurants, all of that. When you think about the all the industry that the travel industry entails, you know, this is a massive loss to the country. It's not some people will be saying, you know, and rightly so, that health is more important. And why are you moaning about your holiday? It's not about, well, it is a little bit about that as well. Other people will be desperate to go abroad. But it's about the economic impact. It's absolutely disastrous. Now, uh, why should we save uh, Richard Branson's Virgin Airways? Because I know, I mean, I think this as well, you know, Richard Branson, he's got a few quid. Could he bail out the whole airline? No, probably he can't. I haven't seen his personal finances. I know he's rich, but I don't think he could bail out the whole, whole airline. It is about all the business that's involved, you know, like I said, all the other business that's trickling in and out. And we are a world class place for travel. You know, we've got an industry that we need to be really, really proud of. Virgin, BA, they've all been brilliant on the world stage. People are coming into Heathrow now. I know a lot of people are moaning about that. There's about 10,000 people coming into the, uh, the country uh, every day, but they are going to be in quarantine, you know, so I think we should, well, I think we, should, we need uh, to say that. Uh, that was one of many ambiguities in uh, the announcement by the Prime Minister this evening. Uh, they are going to be in quarantine, but not yet. No, apparently, well, 
the Prime Minister didn't really say, did he? But apparently he's going to tell, tell us more about it tomorrow. And the quarantine is widely thought to begin at the end of May, which is too little too late. It really is. Even the World Health Organization say if you're going to quarantine, do it at the beginning. Do it in March when we shut down. Why do it now when people are going to come in? People are trickling in and they're probably nobody's going on holiday. They're coming here for all sorts of important reasons and they're going to be subject to the same lockdown and social distancing laws than, as we are. You know, why do it now? It's just too little, too late or maybe even too much too late. But if, uh, if you were a sensible investor, you'd be investing in Zoom, wouldn't you, rather than in Virgin Airways? Uh, I mean, we've learned uh, that it isn't necessary to be somewhere uh, to, to work, for example. Uh, I'm working on Zoom practically every day. You don't necessarily need to be somewhere, no. And business travel, I think, will probably change forever, just as business business itself, people working from home, is going to change forever. And maybe that was needed. You know, we've got to think of the environment as well. And, and travel does have a heavy burden on that. But I always say that travel is about so much more than just taking your holiday. And taking your holiday is really actually very important. But you've got people stuck all over the world now, people that are, were going to see their families, people that are separated from loved ones, people that had weddings planned, you know, that might be seeing people that they care about for the last time. It, travel is about so much more than going on your holiday. So, I mean, yeah, there are things about the industry that needed to change, but not the whole decimation of the, of the industry. You know, it's terrifying. The virus is terrifying. I'm not taking away from that, but this is terrifying for the industry. Unfortunately, we lost Lisa there. Uh, Lisa, thank you very much indeed. Uh, it was short, but it was very sweet. Thank you. Now, of course, it's not just in Britain, though, Britain is now, according to the WHO, the death capital of the world in numbers per millions who have perished. Sweden is second. The United States is third. And in terms of actual numbers, of course, uh, the United States has far and away the largest number of cases and the largest number of fatalities. And it's the bad luck of the incumbent president that it's all happening, not just on his watch, but in the few months before the next presidential election. Garland Nixon is my colleague working in America as a radio talk show host. He's a political analyst of note, and he's a good friend of mine, too. Garland, welcome back on board the Sputnik. Let me ask you first off, uh, on the face of it, the mess that is the United States its economy, its healthcare system, its inability to handle this tsunami of death and suffering uh, from the virus, that must spell uh, death for Donald Trump now, don't you think? One would think that. I mean, certainly looking at the at the environment that we're in right now, you would think that Donald Trump's chances would be very poor of winning. However, um, the thing that's working out on his side is that um, the party, the so-called opposition party, the Democratic Party, has pretty much collapsed around uh, a, a, a really pathetic candidate. They put forth um, Joe Biden, a man with a history of corruption. Actually, Joe Biden, uh, Joe Biden is one of the few candidates that you could find that would probably exceed Donald Trump in most of the um, areas where the Democratic Party has attacked him. So uh, it, from the looks of things, it appears that the Democratic Party has collapsed so bad that Donald, it's, basically it's Donald Trump's to lose because the Dem Democratic Party, they don't have a candidate that can beat him. They basically have no, um, really, they don't have a, any moral standing in that, um, 
in that their, their, their nominee, their presumptive nominee, Joe Biden, has been has a credible accusation of sexual assault. And the Democratic Party is doing a 180 on all of their arguments about, you know, protecting women and sexual assault. So the, the party is an absolute disaster right now. And that, and that could spell, you know, that could spell victory for Donald Trump. Well, uh, to to paraphrase uh, the 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 last uh, surviving mass killer, uh, uh, well, certainly the greatest mass killer on the planet, Henry Kissinger. It's a pity they both can't lose. Uh, but unfortunately, now that Jesse Ventura has pulled out of the presidential race, uh, one of them is going to win. Yes. And, and right now, and I would argue maybe not, because I think the Democratic Party has put themselves in a position, in a bad position for this reason. Their focus was not beating Donald Trump. Their focus was beating Bernie Sanders. Donald Trump is not an existential threat to the Democratic Party as it stands. The Democratic Party is a, you know, it's a it's a, it's a it's a an elite club. And the people in that club uh, do quite well financially. They maintain power and finances. Um, if, if Bernie Sanders had won, he he was, you know, pretty obviously going to throw a monkey wrench in the in the way that 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 party worked, and it could hurt, it could harm their ability to make money off the system. Donald Trump, if if they if, if they lose to Donald Trump, it doesn't matter. Their fundraising is great, and everything will continue in the same way that it that it has. So, in in in, a, in, a, in an odd way, the Democratic Party, from their perspective, have has already won by holding off a challenger to the left that would have held them to account. So now they don't have to be worried about being held to account. They simply say, well, Donald Trump's a bad guy. And if we lose, who cares? We can do four more years of this. Yes, I see that. Um, I see uh, from his basement, though I'm not sure he knows he's there, uh, Joe Biden occasionally stumbling over an auto queue. Uh, but they've clearly uh, adopted the policy of giving Donald Trump enough rope to hang himself. And the more I see of the press briefings uh, of Donald Trump, the more I'm surprised that men in white coats aren't coming on to take him away. Uh, his, uh, his statements, for example, this week uh, about one of uh, Vice President Pence's staff uh, having tested positive, uh, if that wasn't a parody, it was a performance by a man who quite clearly is unhinged. Yes. And if you look at uh, let's start here. If you look at the United States right now, it's a, th th this this country politically, it's a sad state of affairs. When you look uh, at our nominees, when we put forth a guy who's basically a clown in, um, in in Donald Trump and another nominee who's barely cognizantly aware of his surroundings, as you said, um, what does that tell you about this country right now politically? And look at our foreign policy team, Mike Pompeo. A, a, a raving lunatic. So, you know, these guys are uh, reflective of what the United States political system has become, an absolute disaster. And might I add, and this is something that I, I think has to be taken into account, and that is the desperation uh, in America right now. What's not being reported around the world, and certainly not in American, uh, on American television very much, is the hunger. We have um, food lines literally miles long. We have America. America, a country that argues that it's the wealthiest country in the history of the world with, in, I mean, I'm not going to call it poverty, absolute hunger, somewhere between one and four 
all families in the United States are reporting that their children are not going to bed well fed with enough food. So that's that's an issue. We're a country that politically has collapsed. Obviously, economically, we've collapsed. And we don't our government does not have the moral wherewithal to simply do the things they need to do to make sure that people have the most basic of their needs met. So the United States is in a really bad condition right now. How did it come to that, uh, Garland? Uh, your country is uh, a great country. It's the wealthiest and most powerful country in the world uh, that there has ever been. Uh, from sea to shining sea, it has everything that God could possibly have given it. Uh, how does it come to uh, the pass where the pick is between Joe Biden and Donald Trump? Well, you know, we call ourselves a great country, but one of the great um, football, our kind of American football coaches, uh, they called him the tuna, Bill Parcells, had a, had a team full of stars one time, and his team was losing. And they said, well, you have a great team. And he said, wait a minute, we're not great. You are what your record says you are. That's America. We are what our record says we are. We are a country that's extremely violent. We are what we call claimed North Korea was now in that we are a, a uh, we're a country that all of our money goes to the military. We have a powerful military that's going around. Think about this. We have 13 billion dollar aircrafts floating around the seas, shooting million and 10 million dollar missiles and literal food lines. So are we great? Is a country great that has that kind of money, that spends that kind of money, and their citizens are li literally standing in line begging for food? I never thought I'd see this, uh, my country come to this level. But no, we are not a great country anymore. We're simply what we claim North, North Korea was. That's what we've become, a, a, a military empire who allows their citizens to literally starve in the streets. Uh, the percentage of unemployment now in the U.S. is higher than it was in the Great Depression in the 1930s. It's more than 25 percent. Is there any sign of, from the left or right, of an incipient uprising or rebellion, uh, rebellion about all this? I haven't even seen sign of a left or right. <laughs> I've seen sign of 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 a, you know an oligarchical leadership. Right now, Donald Trump has put together a team of people to determine when the the country is going to reopen. He has Tim Cook on there, Sheldon Adelson, uh, Robert Kraft. So he has a team of billionaires to decide the direction of the country. So we already know who they're going to look out for. And I honestly believe this: one of the reasons that the United States has not taken the necessary action to ensure that people have their their needs met you know giving them some money something for food is to create an air of desperation if the united if, if the government says well we want to open up immediately and it goes bad and a lot of people perish well they'll be blamed but if they create an air of desperation then people are begging to go back to work so they won't starve to death and if it goes bad which it quite likely might then they can simply say well you know you guys asked for it so i i think that's part of the problems the billionaires are in charge everywhere and they're going to look out for the billionaires. Now, of course, because the schools are closed, uh, there's uh, fewer mass school shootings, uh, but the racism hasn't gone away. Uh, I saw some shocking footage this week, I think it was in Boston, uh, of, uh, of the police uh, savagely attacking black people uh, in the streets uh, on the uh, guise, at least, uh, of uh, social distancing uh, offences. The, in this pressure cooker that you describe so eloquently, uh, the racial tensions in the United States 
are uh, potentially going to erupt if it's a long, hot summer. Well, you know, I expect those types of things to, to, to erupt. When you have this kind of economic pain, when you have people who can't even meet their most basic needs, you're going to have social unrest. We have a, a country that told people you have to go, you have to be locked up for the next eight eight weeks. And it certainly appears that may have been, you know, what needed to, to, to be done. But they've done nothing to mitigate the poverty. They've, they've just simply said you have to be in your home and you have to have enough money money or whatever to to handle it, which most Americans don't, and they're doing nothing to mitigate it. And and so things are going to heat up. Certainly there's some racial divisions in America that have existed for centuries. But with this type of frustration, fear um, and stress, I, I expect that we'll see a lot more um, a lot more social unrest. And, you know, maybe once there's social unrest and things start to fall apart and their cash cow starts to starts to melt down, maybe then and only then the billionaires will will think that to save their own hides and to save the economy that's making them rich, maybe they'll do something then, but certainly not before. Carla Nixon, thanks for joining us on the mother of all talk shows. Let's uh, go back to the switchboard where Chris in Bowness is up next. Go ahead, Chris. Hi, George. Hi. Hi, good to speak to you. And you, mate. I've just got a very short point to make. Um, I'm a good um, supporter of you, and uh, I like everything you're saying, more or less. But I must pull you on one stat you just brought out at the very, very beginning of the show, where you mentioned that the UK was ahead of the, the death per million um, due to this dreadful disease, and Sweden were close behind in second place. Yeah. And, I, and I'm currently looking at the... The stats from today, Statista, who I follow closely, and according to the stats from today, near the 10th, 2020, uh, Belgium are top of the league, just a million seventy-five. Whose stats are these, Chris? These are um, Statista. Yeah, but I'm quoting the World Statista. Health Organization. Um, no, 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 I, no, no, I don't follow the world. I, I don't no, I, I, I'm, I'm no, quoting you. the WHO uh, figures. Right, okay, well, I'm looking at I think that's, uh, uh, that, that, that's a bit more uh, serious than something called statistics. Well, these, these are, these are 12, um, 12 top ones, 10 today. Belgium is has the first against followed by Spain, followed by Italy, followed but, by the United Kingdom. But are we are we are we comparing apples with pears here, uh, Chris? I'm talking no, about no, I'm no, talking about the deaths per million. Yes, that's what I'm talking about, George. I'm talking about I tweeted this uh, before the show. You can scroll down on my Twitter feed. You can look at the figures. Uh, it's a bar chart, and it's, I'm afraid, yeah. indisputable uh, that our deaths well, per million uh, uh, are over 60, and Sweden's well, are very close people, behind, and the United States very close behind them. Well, look on my Twitter feed, uh, Chris. Uh, uh, look on my Twitter feed and you'll and see the WHO bar chart uh, that I was uh, referring to. Brambo says, since when did herd immunity get such a bad reputation? Seems to have served our species well for quite a few hundreds of thousands of years. Well, we've kind of come on, Brambo, you know. Uh, we kind of... Since the Second World War and the death of fascist eugenics, we
kind of feel responsible for the old and the weak. Uh, we kind of feel that it's, well, a bit primitive just to let the weaker members of the herd perish. Shahid says, send that bumbling Boris Johnson to the NHS to clean bedpans. Only then will he appreciate the life and death value of personal protection products. And Ola says, I didn't listen to him, I have to admit, I can't stand him. I thought there couldn't be a worse PM than May, but oh my, this one is the worst by far. No leadership at all. And on YouTube, Orion says, George, will you talk about all the protests in Germany, Australia and London? People have had enough, I think. Well, the, the protests in London were <laughs> a couple of dozen people uh, at most, and that included the uh, journalists. I did see the American Taliban armed to the teeth with automatic weapons storming into various capital buildings in the various states, causing the governors to flee. Uh, is that what you had in mind, Orion? Really? And on Instagram, Rob says the disaster is yet to come. And Tommy says no time for austerity during a global emergency. Let me take a quick break. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Radio Sputnik. Tune in every Wednesday to Loud and Clear with Brian Becker and John Kiriakou for a regular segment called Beyond Nuclear, where Brian and John discuss nuclear issues, including weapons, energy, waste, and the future of nuclear technology in the United States with Kevin Camps, the radioactive waste watchdog at the organization Beyond Nuclear. Listen on Wednesdays right here on Radio Sputnik. Want to talk? Get in touch with us at radio at sputniknews.com. Now, uh, Dr. Tim Walters joined us last week in advance of uh, very important decisions being made around the world about the restarting of the football season. I wanted to hear from him an update on what's happening, partly because I'm missing the football so very, very much. And he kindly agreed to come on. Dr. Tim Walters is a professor at Okanagan College, but he's also a pretty ace football commentator. Tim, thanks for uh, coming back. Uh, what can you do to update us on uh, what's happening now on the football front? Um, well, the Premier League clubs are meeting tomorrow, George. Um, Originally, I think the plan as part of so-called Project Restart was that they were going to be voting um, on the official details of that plan. But now seems that's going to be deferred because there's a bunch of dissent about how to bring football back. Um, so they're just trying to essentially iron out the details of the general outline of the plan, which is to follow other leagues like the Bundesliga, which starts next weekend, in resuming play um, probably in June. Um, 
at uh, grounds across across the country, where those grounds will be is one of the things that they're arguing about, playing the games behind closed doors, obviously. Um, uh, and I think the entire thing is a sort of catastrophic recipe for disaster, very much in keeping with the way that the Johnson government and footballing authorities have handled it so far. Um, but unless there's some kind of massive upswell of opposition to this idea, I think that's uh, the path that they seem to be heading on. I would imagine at some point within the next week or so, they'll be announcing dates and so forth of uh, where things are going to resume. Now, why are you so skeptical about it? And what would you do instead, Tim? All right. Well, it's, it's a sort of complicated question. Um, I'll start with the context. So I think that when, if and when we look back at the past couple of weeks uh, and the way that the governments handle this across all different sectors, obviously, but focusing on football in particular, the thing that is going to become very clear is that March 11th was sort of a, a key date. On March 11th, the WHO declared that this was a pandemic. That same day, Boris Johnson went on Facebook and posted an interview from Downing Street, this fireplace chat with the uh, deputy chief medical officer, Jenny, uh, Dr. Jenny Harries, um, and specifically talked about why it was the case that football had not been shut down so far. Um, so that same day, Liverpool played Atletico Madrid. The previous weekend, there had been a full slate of fixtures three and four days beforehand. Um, the Manchester Derby happened that weekend. The Cheltenham Festival happened that weekend. And so medical experts have already begun to kind of crunch through the numbers. And a company called Edge Health out of the UK um, that supplies a lot of data analytics to the National Health Service have just focused on three of those events. So they focused on the Cheltenham Festival, where there was 150,000 people. They focused on the Manchester Derby, 73,000 people. And they focused on the Liverpool Atletico Champions League tie in Liverpool, 52,000 fans, 3,000 of which traveled from Spain. In Spain, they already would have been prohibited from attending the football match. So... The analysis that they have come up with suggests that those events led to an increase in the 20 to 35 days later uh, in the number of deaths in those communities um, of between 2.5 and almost four additional deaths per day. Uh, so that's just looking at three events, uh, uh, and, and that adds up, of course, in the weeks that have followed that. So... I think that that week is going to go down in football history as the period when uh, the government and footballing authorities allowed policies to be enacted to led, that led directly uh, to the deaths of several hundred football fans, their family members, their friends, other people that live and work in the communities that surround those stadiums. Um, tomorrow is the... 35th anniversary of the Bradford fire where 56 fans lost their lives. We just had the 31st anniversary of the Hillsborough disaster where 90, 96 fans were murdered. Um, both of those horrible episodes were directly caused by government policies around football and by the treatment of fans by footballing authorities. Um, and I think that the week before 
um, Johnson made that speech uh, is going to uh, go down in football history as the deadliest week um, when many hundreds of people unnecessarily lost their lives as a result of bad decision making on the part of the authorities. And I think exactly that same logic that was that led to those unnecessary deaths is going to continue on uh, even under a plan to play football behind closed doors. If you play football behind closed doors, you still need, um, as I talked about last week, upwards of 300 people, players, coaching staff, trainers, officials, media people, security people, et cetera, et cetera. Um, there's not a way in which you can have tens of thousands of individual interactions that by definition cannot maintain social distancing rules uh, played in a condensed period of time um, that will maintain the safety of those workers, not just the players, but the other people in the stadium. And I think that the, the, the desire on the part of the government uh, to bring people back so as to convey some semblance of normal normalcy and to be able to convey to people this completely delusional illusion that uh, everything is okay uh, is going to lead to the deaths of players and uh, other workers in those stadiums. And that is uh, completely avoidable, but seems to be the direction in which they're heading. And that's something that sort of, insofar as he actually said anything in the speech that uh, your prime minister made uh, a few hours ago, uh, is very much in keeping, it seems to me, with the government's general policy, which is to pretend that everyone is in a lockdown quarantine while at the same time sort of covertly nudge nudging everyone back to work so as to get the economic years again. Uh, and to me, that is risking the lives of working people in ways that are absolutely unnecessary. Football players do not have to go to work. You were talking earlier about um, workplace safety and union regulations in your country that make it uh, illegal for employers to force people back to work. And that is gonna be exactly what's happening with football players. Bundesliga players, um, Dynamo Dresden uh, have already tested positive since they resumed training. Three Brighton players um, have tested positive, including a new player uh, testing positive just yesterday. Um, so I think it's completely unnecessary um, and to be avoided at all costs. I do have a kind of alternative uh, to the proposed plan that I have been advocating for for the past month. You can read it on Sporting Intelligence com or uh, on my Twitter at Tim L. Walters. And I'm I'll happy definitely to do it. that. And I hope you'll come back uh, maybe next week, Tim, when we know what the Premier League has finally decided. I'm very grateful to you for that update. And everyone should check uh, sportingintelligence.com and follow you on Twitter at Tim L. Walters. Tim L. Walters. Dr. Walters, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Well, did the Prime Minister's message make you feel A, safer, 19%, B, less safe, 81%. Wow, that is amazing. That poll's closing in seven minutes. You can still vote on my Twitter feed. Let's take a call from Luke in the Wirral. Go ahead, Luke. 
Hello, George. Good evening, mate. All Good right. evening. Nice to hear All from right. you. Go ahead. Yeah, you too. Um, yeah, basically, I, I want to get straight to the point. You know, all this money printing that goes on with the quantitative easing, um, yeah. you know, when, when the banks need the handout from all those taxpayers. Yeah. Um, and, and, and obviously, they, they get it every time that there's no... You know, we don't really have sort of a say in it, do they? Do, do we? So, so uh, they, they just get it. And um, but now we're in a, in a pandemic. Uh, we're in this this awful situation where people are dying all over the world and everything. But um, would would it be all right if they can do a bit of money printing for us? You know, to keep the furlough going so we can stay at home. Yeah, and keep it's absurd. Uh, look, the, it's funny money already. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So the 80% of your wages figure was just plucked uh, yeah. uh, randomly uh, from the money tree. Uh, it was equally possible uh, for him to underwrite 100% of your wages. Uh, you don't have to go to work because we don't think it's safe for you to do so, uh, but you won't lose money. Uh, we'll pay you 100% or you could have paid 110% because it's all quantitatively eased money. That's the reality. Now, they like to suggest that there is a moral hazard in uh, giving you 100% of your wages, and from Tuesday, I, I understand, not even 80% of your wages. There's a moral hazard in that, uh, because that'll make you lazy, look. That'll make you work shy. Uh, but there's no moral hazard in giving banks hundreds and hundreds of billions of pounds. Billions. No moral hazard at all involved trillions in that. Trillions of dollars. Trillions. Yeah. Well, across trillions. the globe. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Look, uh, uh, the time is uh, our enemy. I love talking to you. Forgive me. I need to press on to Terry in Los Angeles. Go ahead, Terry. Hey, George. Good to talk to you. And you, sir. Uh, the, uh, the last few... Weeks have kind of showed the progressives have just collapsed, basically, uh, and they're just giving in to everything Pelosi and uh, Schumer want. I mean, you can see what's going to happen here. They're supposedly, Schumer says it's going to be the Rooseveltian uh, plan. Anything that this guy and Pelosi comes up with is going to be bad. I mean, we just know that. So what I just wanted to find out is what you think is causing Sanders and the progressives just to sort of collapse. Because I, I, I remember when I was in the Democratic Party here in California back in the 90s, uh, I was fighting against NAFTA. And the Democratic Party actually would say, shut up and sit down. Even the people in the audience. It was ridiculous. And so um, I had, was doing business with Mexico. And when NAFTA passed, within two weeks, Citibank took their currency from three pesos to the dollar to seven doubled prices of everything. I did no more work in Mexico. I sold no more products for 20 years. So you can see exactly how that system works. So anyway, what do you think they... Uh, well, they uh, that's a wonderful uh, call, uh, Terry. Uh, uh, it's just a pity I need to go to the news very shortly. But uh, my first thought is I wish I uh, had been born in America because if I had been, I'd be running for president right now because the current situation is screaming out for someone who can string a few words together, at least, who knows where they are, at least, 
who can speak English, who uh, knows what needs to be done. Uh, because now that Sanders has run away, and there's no other word for that, he ran away right at the point where the U.S. economy was in free fall, heading for 1930s-style collapse, where food uh, lines, as, uh, as Gavin Nixon just talked about, uh, miles of food lines, people queuing for miles to get free food. Uh, and when the leaders of the Democratic and Republican Party are not just two cheeks of the same backside, they're two clowns in the same circus. It's screaming out for someone like uh, Governor Jesse Ventura to enter the race as a strong man, as a man that knows what needs to be done with a record and with a program. And that's what we don't have, Terry. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think uh, uh, Ventura has uh, said he's not going to run now, but people need to, to just clamor for him to get back in because, I hope so. you know, it'd be finally nice to not have to vote for the lesser of two evils. Well, and yeah. that's what we've been I, doing I, for I, decades. I gave that up uh, a long time ago. If you vote for the lesser of two evils, you're still voting for evil. And you're making sure that next time round, uh, the choice will be even more <laughs> pernicious, even more evil, because if they know that you'll vote for evil, uh, as long as it's slightly less evil than the other guy, uh, then why should they put up anybody that isn't evil? Terry, thanks. Uh, a wonderful uh, call. Uh, okay, the, pr the Prime Minister's poll is done. 81% of you feel less safe. 19% of you feel safer. Here's the new poll. Should UK care homes be nationalized? A, yes. B, no. This is my own personal campaign, and I'm asking everybody to get behind it. Should UK care homes be nationalized? A, yes. B, no. You can vote now on my Twitter feed. Uh, his clip with me last week uh, on the issue of a virus, uh, uh, of a vaccine rather, uh, and whether or not China would get one, whether or not the British would buy it if they did, uh, is the hottest clip ever produced by the mother of all talk shows in, what, 47 weeks of the show. And so I'm always grateful when I see him back on the screen, particularly in situ, as I understand he is this evening. Dr. Ranjit, welcome back to the mother of all talk shows. Now, uh, as I said earlier, uh, the clip we did last week has attracted uh, such a lot of attention, uh, a lot of it negative. Uh, there is a kind of madness uh, in the air uh, about vaccines. And I'd like to begin by asking you about that. Uh, some people don't seem to know uh, that polio was eliminated from the world uh, by a vaccine, uh, that measles, uh, vaccines and, and uh, smallpox vaccines and so on are perfectly root routine and uh, perfectly proper instruments of healthcare. Uh, why has it uh, come to pass uh, that uh, a mass movement exists in the world hating, fearing vaccines? Thanks, George. Good to be back with you. Um, there, there's, a, there's a few components to this answer, and it's once again partly medical and mainly 
of political nature. So vaccines have been one of the few great success stories of medicine. Um, the learning to work with the immune system to create immunity prior to exposure and therefore to you know, obviate the real morbidity and mortality of diseases. And the classic one to think of is smallpox. Smallpox was a disease to which Native Americans in the United States were entirely uh, naive. They'd never seen it. Uh, and we talked a little bit about the book Guns, Germs and Steel by Jared Diamond and I can't go into the whole thing now. But part of the extermination of the Native Americans and the stealing of their land was the deliberate giving to them of blankets that were infected with smallpox. This is a virus, it's a DNA virus, but it's a virus. Much, much later, this was a scourge, a worldwide scourge, that the World Health Organization successfully eradicated or coordinated a program of eradication via vaccination. So we know vaccination works and remains one of the great success stories of medicine. But now, of course, we've moved beyond that stage. My children, as I as a child, had vaccinations for tuberculosis, a bacteria, for many different kinds of um, viral illnesses, including meningitis, um, measles, mumps, and rubella. Now, there was, a, there was a researcher at my medical school, in fact, uh, when I was at medical school, at the Royal Free Medical School, um, who was doing some research and queried whether there was a link between a, uh, a vaccine for MMR and for autism. In fact, that was never proven, but his ideas became um, a celebrity, celebrity cause, particularly in the United States, and particularly amongst Hollywood. And there's been an anti-vaccination movement there, to the extent that measles has reappeared as a major uh, epidemic in, in many areas of the developed world, because people are not wanting, um, sorry, George, uh, not wanting to uh, have vaccination. More than that, there's a question of a link um, between uh, these very large medical industry and drugs in general and the way in which they promote them and develop them and whether that is, uh, in many cases, you know, there's a conflicting interest between the need of a multi-billion dollar company to generate profit and the need of the health industry and the medical personnel to take care of the population. And it's that conflicting need, it's that conflicting interest that has led to some vaccines which were not safe being used in trials, some medicines which were not safe being used in trials, and particularly populations in the third world being vulnerable to unscrupulous medical practices, particularly in the wake of the Nazis. We've celebrated the victory in Europe Day on 8th and 9th of this month, so yesterday and the day before, when fascism was defeated, but particularly the medical practice, practices of the fascist doctors, the German Nazi doctors, who performed quite inhuman and unethical experiments upon the civilian population, led to something called the Helsinki Declaration, in which we were supposed to eliminate these practices, but in various states and for various reasons, and under the profit motive, um, many medical companies have been caught out uh, in unethical practices and I think it's for this reason that people are extremely suspicious. They have seen that whatever situation happens, the, um, the prevailing powerful orthodox elite within business or within government and that affects all you know, spheres of human activity 
from food production to construction. You know, you know, not to say that there's anything wrong with eating food, nothing wrong with living in houses, and there's nothing wrong with medicine. But the way in which it's administered and developed uh, is often seen to be opaque and against the interests of the mass of the population. And I think for these reasons, people are extremely skeptical. And they rightly point out, for example, um, if you look at the Jenner Institute and AstraZeneca, who are co collaborating to try and develop a vaccine, um, they have gone into mass production before they have the tests of their vaccine. Now, they're very much hoping that that mass production will be backed up by the fact that their virus, uh, their, their vaccine works. But of course, there'll be tremendous commercial pressures having invested in, and I saw a, a, an interesting interview with a professor from the General Institute at Oxford University saying that they were planning to have billions of vaccines ready to go, if you like, at the point that they'll have their results back. But will they then have tremendous pressure on them to say that the vaccine works or is safer than it is, obviously that will be a conflicting pressure. And so for this reason, I think there's a degree of skepticism, but you know, the technology of vaccination is a fantastic technology. It does offer a way out, but it's as old as, um, you know, the father of medicine, we'll take the Hippocratic Oath, Hippocrates, a famous Roman physician, um, famously said, first, do no harm. And I think that's where the NHS and institutions like it, which don't charge money, have a tremendous degree of trust and respect from the population of Britain, where socialized medicine has a degree of trust from the population, which is not seen in extreme systems of private health. And there are many examples where private health in India or in the United States has oversupplied unnecessary care because it makes money rather than delivers health outcomes. And I think it's that contradiction, which is a political contradiction, which clouds people's judgment on the question of vaccination. Well, that, that's an argument for uh, taking profit and taking uh, private interest out of medicine altogether, isn't it? I'm campaigning now, my poll is on it uh, at the moment. Uh, on taking care homes into public ownership, making them part of, if you like, the medical and social care furniture uh, in the country. We ought to bring the pharmaceutical industry into public ownership. Uh, and if we did, we wouldn't just be guarding against unethical behavior by drug companies. Uh, we'd be saving the National Health Service a fantastic amount of money. I think that's absolutely right, George. Um, you know, in the National Health Service, people can very clearly see they're so grateful that they can turn up, receive care, irrespective of their financial needs. But of course, what they see is very undemocratic. If they turn up extremely ill and they're turned away and were to suffer ill health, negative consequences or die in the case of needing emergency care. That's absolutely the case for care homes. It's actually absolutely the case for a large number of other vital social services which are needed by all working people. And in the last, last analysis, why should it be that all wealth, all mechanisms of generating wealth are in private hands and all mechanisms of generating debt 
are in public hands. It can't carry on. If you look at the NHS budget, which goes up year on year, and politicians are always claiming that they're um, spending more on the NHS, that they're giving more than ever before, um, not only is it actually relatively unresourced, because we spend about 8% of our GDP as opposed to 12% of other nations on the, on the NHS, but a huge amount of money goes directly through the NHS to private companies, and 25 billion or so goes directly through the NHS into the, into the realms of private drug companies. Private drug companies, therefore, have an interest in promoting relatively new, relatively expensive drugs and, and neglecting research on relatively old but efficacious and drugs that they can't make a lot of money on. So there's a direct conflict of interest, similarly with new technologies, similarly with the PFI, uh, 10 billion for the NHS, and over the lifetime uh, of the NHS, we'll have to pay back 90 billion for the 12 billion that we borrowed. So there's a huge amount of exploitation that goes on by the NHS. And the, very, the, the remarkable thing, when we look at how disastrous has been the strategy of testing and the strategy of providing PPE vastly undersupplied to the NHS, failure to prepare for the pandemic, which had been anticipated. We know there was this Operation Cygnus just in 2016. What we found out that all of this sourcing of adequate testing and adequate PPI was actually farmed out under the new laws passed uh, by uh, this government in response allegedly to the coronavirus to private companies, to management consultancies who charged hundreds uh, and, uh, well, they employed thousands of consultants, each at thousands of pounds an hour, to mismanage this crisis. So this crisis has been used to further the agenda, the pre-existing agenda of privatization of the NHS. We, you know, Boris, when he came out from hospital, was spoken glowing terms about nurses who had looked after him in the care of the NHS, but whereas you were hopeful this might be a sign that he was planning to support the NHS. It's very clear, actually, the more you look behind the actions taken by the government, they are using this crisis to push their pre-existing agenda. And I think when people see that pre-existing agenda being pushed, they, then they start imagining that this is a conspiracy. Of course, it's not a conspiracy. Coronavirus is real. It's a real threat. It's a real danger. And the consequences of coming out of lockdown early, I feel, are severe. But what you can really see, the conspiracy is against the working people and everything is being run in the interests of big business and of private profit, George. And lastly, briefly, if you will, uh, the uh, statement by the Prime Minister this evening, only 19% of those polled by us felt safer at the end of his speech than they felt at the beginning. Where do you stand on that? Um, I'm with the 80% on this, George. I mean, I don't like being in lockdown. I very much enjoy going outside. But I think the way to come out of lockdown is to eradicate the virus in the population, as has been done in China. We're very keen not to learn the lessons of, of adequate testing, adequate tracing. And when we bring up tracing, I'm afraid the government doesn't have the ability, it seems, to employ people to pick up the phone of people who have and, and phone those who have had a positive test, go and visit them, find out who were the people around them Who've had, who they've been in contact with, that's the way to trace. What they're coming out with are big tech solutions which are extremely intrusive, where data from the NHS will now be shared with GCHQ. And of course, that makes people 
rightly suspicious of their motives, whereas the simple measures of testing, finding out where the virus is and protecting the population, I'm afraid these were the things that were neglected. And coming out, when we are still seeing that there are hundreds of deaths a day, a few fewer deaths, but hundreds of deaths a day, when we're still seeing that our ITUs have many patients, our hospitals have many patients, I'm operating on patients who have this uh, virus, I'm caring for patients on the ward who have this virus, if we come out of lockdown and we're forcing people back to work in a vulnerable situation, then we will see, I'm afraid, another spike in deaths. And it's, you know, it's worth pointing out that in fact bus drivers per uh, capita of the population have a higher risk than doctors. So frontline workers will not be immune from this situation, George. So I think it's uh, early. Uh, to come out of lockdown, but more importantly, I think the correct measures that could really have controlled the virus have not been taken. Well, he said tonight, uh, Doctor, uh, and I'm quoting him directly, anyone who can't work from home should be actively encouraged to go to work. And that's a potential death sentence on workers going into uh, what by any standards uh, are potentially lethal environments. It, it is, George, and um, we've seen that this is not just the disease of the elderly, 20-year-olds, 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds, 50-year-olds, 60-year-olds can and are dying. We've seen in order to clear space within the hospitals to treat uh, people with coronavirus, uh, we've funneled people into care homes, and it means that there's a prevalence of the disease in the community, which we're, we're not sure what it is, but it's definitely still present. And once the population start moving around freely again, there will be another increase. And it is a falsehood to say that it's our response to the coronavirus that's called the economic crash. The economic crash and the consequences of that are there. And it's the businesses that have been bailed out. And by pursuing this move, it's going to be further reducing the support available to working people, forcing them back to work, yes, in an unsafe situation. Thank you very much, as always, Dr. Ranjit Bra, doctor and physician, surgeon and Moats medic. Thank you very much for joining us. Should UK care homes be nationalised? Yes, 84%. No, 16%. Vote now on my Twitter feed, at George Galloway. Let's take some calls. Here's one on Venezuela. Mike in South Carolina. Go ahead, Mike. Hey, George. Great to talk to you again. And you, sir. Yeah, it's... It's, uh, it is Orwellian what they're doing as far as rewriting history of uh, the, the USSR and, and, and Russia. And, it is, and, yeah. You know, organization, but, but it's also uh, a crime what's happening in Venezuela at the direction of the United States. Uh, our president here, who, who welcomed Juan Guaido into the uh, State of the Union address as the president of, of Venezuela, who put a price on Maduro's head, uh, which is led to this uh, coup attempt by these mercenaries who went down there and tried to, uh, uh, you know, capture, uh, you know, the uh, Maduro, the, the actual president of the country. Amidst all the sanctions and the stealing of uh, all of uh, Venezuela's assets, which your country is, is, is also uh, involved in as far as the gold that they have in, in, in the British banks, and then you, you also, you know, you have all of these things uh, being brought to bear on this country. The sanctions that have killed probably 50,000 people down there before we even start with a COVID virus. I mean, it's insane that these people, these mercenaries, go down there and they, they do this. 
uh, you know, many of them killed, a couple captured. And those that are captured, you know, give you the documents, you know, where, where you know, Juan Guaido has signed off on this. And, you know, they didn't do this without the support of the American government. What is amazing, you know what Mike, saying? what is amazing is that it wasn't just with the support of the American government, uh, but with the official opposition uh, to the American government. The Democrats are supporting every act of aggression against the that government of Venezuela. Uh, uh, you know, how can, how can this pass through the news with just crickets? Nobody's talking about it. And this ought to be front and center of, of everything that's happening because it's just another example of how empire is working to overturn the will of the people in South America, just like it always has. Brilliant call, Mike. Brilliant, brilliant call. Thank you very much for making it. Laura is in Pembrokeshire on the uh, Hi. Boris Johnson issue. Go ahead, Laura. Hi, George. Hi. Um, I have a question, actually, um, and it is, what do we think it would actually take for a British Prime Minister to resign in this day and age? Mm. It's a very good question. Um, um, I, I, I can't understand why uh, Mike Hancock, uh, the health secretary, has survived, I, I must say. Uh, he's got front-line responsibility for a series of blunder after blunder after blunder. Uh, but there does seem evidence, uh -huh. Laura, that Boris himself is coming under pressure now, uh, both from the public opinion uh, uh, numbers uh, in terms of this, uh, this uh, lockdown, uh, where 90% of the people of Britain are against the policy that he just announced this evening. Uh, and uh, inside the Tory party, you've got people who are uh, angry at Johnson for not going even further in sending our people into uh, death traps. So maybe, mm. maybe Boris Johnson's position is beginning to be a little less secure. What do you think? Well, I mean, I keep, I keep seeing um, figures of around 50% of British voters are in favor of Johnson. And I also saw how, how many lies were told in the campaign for the recent election. Um, and how many, you know, it seems like how many lies that get told all the time and figures that are wrong and all of that kind of stuff. I just feel like uh, personal political integrity and culpability seems to have disappeared in this country. Um, I think you're right. I think you're right. Uh, you're absolutely right about that. Uh, and people mm. keep coming back from uh, disgrace. You would have thought after mm. the Chilcot inquiry, for example, uh, that you would never see Tony Blair's face again. Uh, but in mm. fact, Tony Blair is on the television more than almost anyone else in this country. And he's calling mm -hmm. all the shots inside the opposition Labour Party. His man, uh, I, I, I say his Pinocchio uh, that he fashioned, uh, is now the leader and unchallengeable. Uh, so you're mm. right. I mean, standards have definitely slipped. Mm. And, and things that would have had to have come to light, such as the Russian report, um, you know, the investigation into Boris's dealings with Jennifer Arcuri seems to have been shelved, all sorts of things like that that would have, you know, not gone unnoticed before as, as being a scandal that, should, that needs to be um, addressed. Now, I think, I almost feel like um, Boris Johnson is, um, bombarding us with 
so many scandals that we can't keep up and none of them get looked into. Well, of course, we're supposed to have a fourth estate in government, uh, in uh, political life, in public life. That fourth estate being the journalists and the uh, broadcasters. Uh, but th th they have allowed these things, th that Russia report you refer to, and the Akuri mm. report. Wh why are journalists not asking where these reports are? Mm. I think some are, but it seems to be lost in the ocean of, of you know... And it's the same on, uh, on the other side of the ocean, isn't it? It's the same Sorry, in the United States. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you almost... Uh, this is slightly off-topic, off in a way, but you, you almost see, like, the whole Jeremy Corbyn anti-Semitism thing is, is mirrored with Bernie Sanders. It's like, it's bizarre how, how things are mirrored across... Yeah, it worked, like uh, it worked in, uh, in both cases. Laura, thanks for that lovely call. Glenn is in Carlisle. Let's hear him. Go ahead, Glenn. Hi, George. Uh, great to speak to you. Um, thanks for having us on the show. I do, um, do really appreciate it. Welcome. Um, I would uh, also take the opportunity to commend you as well, as a member of the Workers' Party of Britain, commend you on your uh, talk you get on uh, yesterday night about the uh, heroic victory of the Red Army. Thank over. you, yeah. Uh, people can still um, watch that, by the way, Glenn. Uh, they can still watch that on, uh, on my Facebook page and on my uh, YouTube page. Uh, this was a public meeting we had last night commemorating the uh, victory of the Red Army on the 9th of May. Glenn, thanks for that. Go ahead. Yes, no, like I have to commend you on it. It's very moving and um, and uh, very, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, well deserved and uh, yeah, thank uh, you. Uh, brilliantly put across. I have to say, I've been uh, starting to share it with my friends, and I've encouraged them to watch it. Thank um, you, sir. Yeah. Uh, and it's. It's entirely right. We should commemorate it, as you said, because without without it, our swastikas might be hanging from our windows today. I might have exactly. been done over the last seventy-five years. Exactly. Maybe um, in, maybe until now. There. Maybe no, until no. now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the reason I, the reason I called and the main reason I uh, I wanted to speak this evening was, I mean, partly some of the uh, the calls and comments I think show how bafflingly naive and, you know, willfully ignorant uh, some people have been about this, which uh, astonishes, I mean, it astonished me to begin with, it astonishes me even now, um, you know, how, how willfully ignorant, how, like, kind of, you know, almost, uh, you know, as you said, defying of all rationality, like broad more levels of uh, denial and naivety about it. Um, which just as done. Thankfully, they seem to be in a minority, but it yeah, is they a are, minority. Yeah. They, they've got a big yeah. voice on social media. They make a lot of noise, uh, but actually, they're a very small percentage of the public. Yeah, um, which I think they are, they're, they're fueled by people's lack of trust in the government these days and yeah. people's lack of trust in, in experts, as Ranjit was intimating before, yeah. um, quite rightly. And, um, you know, people have a right to distrust the government, but it seems that people can't hear evidence and can't hear factual information when it's staring them in the face. Uh, so. There are malign actors, you know. There are, people, there are people who fill their boots uh, from, the, uh, from the stirring up of that kind of madness. There are people mm. who, who sell uh, um, DVDs and books and fill halls and make a lot of money uh, on both sides of the Atlantic uh, from these insane 
conspiracy theories. Uh, but uh, it's by and large down to what you just identified, that our people are so distrustful of authority and government because of having been burned so badly so many times by government and systemic lying and, uh, and, uh, and uh, deceit uh, that they are not prepared to, without going on to Google, uh, believe if Boris says the grass is green, they, they want to double check it. Glenn, yeah. thanks uh, for that call, a wonderful one. James, probably the last call of the evening, maybe not, is in Collingwood. Go ahead, James. Uh, hello, George. I'm glad to say that I'm a long-term listener and a fan of yours, and I, I appreciate your encouraging Jeffy, Jesse Ventura. Oh, I love and Jesse. I'm, I love him. He's a good friend of mine. I'd love to I'm see him run for president. I'm very appreciative of the fact that you're doing the best you can for Julian Assange. Thank That's you. a travesty, an offense against British justice. It's just awful that he's in that jail. Absolutely. Um, and, but do do what you can. My my point is that the companies and the, particularly the United States governments, but other governments, seem to want to get the, their economies going before we get deeper into a depression. Yeah. And the thing that they want to do is, and they have done as they did 11 years ago, they produce a bunch of money, a huge amount of money, and give it to the companies and give it to the banks. And what they ought to do is give that money share and share alike to the individual citizens. It, it is the only way to get the economy going and give the money to the people so they're not forced to go into employment in, in things that are not safe. And they could, the governments could do that. If they're going, to have, as they have done, they're putting new money into the system and they should give it each share to each share to every citizen. What the, if they're going to not get into a depression, they're going to have to support the money supply, and that's something that they never talk about. Absolutely. Brilliant, brilliant call. Maybe the best call of the night, James, in Canada. Uh, thank you very much for it. I need to cut you off because there's a legend on the line, and everybody knows the rules here. When a legend appears on the line, Everything else has to be cleared. It is, of course, the wonderful Norma in Bristol. Norma, last Hello, call. George. Welcome. Hello. Um, well, there's so much depressing news at the moment that I wanted to just suggest two more of the Hall of Fame. Now, I've mentioned him before, but I watched this film on the Amazon Prime Pavarotti film, and, you know, it's a real must-see. I mean... Okay, we all agree that he had a magnificent voice, Luciano Pavarotti. It's the voice but of God. He, it's the voice of God, yeah. Norma. But, you know, he did so much more for society. And in this film, which is one and a half hours long, he's helped with all the people that are poorer all around the world in different circumstances. And, I mean, he gave us such joy of living that I thought it was good to mention it in this depressing time. It's on our short list. On our short list. <laughs> that I promise you. I've got another one, though, just very quickly. It's a much more serious one. Uh, Florence Nightingale. She did so much to 
reformed the nursing service, and she was a very determined woman. And at this time, I thought, well, I'd mention her as well. Well, of course, uh, and uh, she uh, saw the horrors of the the war in Crimea, Crimea yeah, uh, and uh, and saw the state uh, of the provision made for the poor, bloody infantry Absolutely. sent uh, into the maw of war for reasons which were unfathomable at the time and are now lost in the mists of yeah. history. And uh, she and, and several other pioneers uh, that we can return to, uh, maybe we'll put together a few of those uh, and elevate them uh, to, the, to the Hall of Fame. Uh, two good suggestions, Norma. Are you and your husband still keeping all right? Yeah, we're not so bad. I've got a very big, painful eye at the moment, so I can't see you properly. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you can hear me, Norma. Yeah, thank you okay. very much uh, for thank your you. lovely uh, call, which will indeed be the last call of the evening. Uh, I'll be talking again in a Zoom meeting on Tuesday night at 8 o'clock on all of my platforms. I'll be talking about Ireland. Uh, and my, our attitude towards Ireland, historically and now uh, contemporaneously. Uh, you can still get a signed copy uh, of my first novel, Queensway. I've nearly finished its sequel now. Uh, there it is there on the screen. Uh, if you write to info at georgegalloway.com and uh, give me your details, I'll send you a signed dedicated copy, but you can also get it on Amazon and Amazon Prime. But in that case, it will not, of course, uh, be signed. It will come to you straight from them. It's been marvelous for me. I hope it was for you. And if it was, come back next week at the same time, in the same place, for the mother of all talk shows. And bring another viewer, another listener with you. <laughs>